Today is Wednesday. It's June 7th, 2023. It's 2.45 in the afternoon. And hi, this is John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. Highlights of which we broadcast Saturday nights at 8 on WGN Radio. You can listen to me weekdays from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Anna DeBlantis, journalist, investigative journalist, and WGN and Star contributor. And I'm Eric Zorn, former Tribune columnist and now the editor and publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, a Substack newsletter. And if you want to get it, email me at ericzorn at gmail.com and I will... Send it to you every Thursday. Anna DeVlantis, thanks for being part of the pod this week. Thanks for the invite, John. Yeah. I've been dropping hints for how long now? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'm glad you can join us, and I hope you can join us on occasion, because uh, nobody's had their sort of nose to the news in Chicago like you for a while now. So I hope you're ready to roll on our multifaceted discussion today. Happy to take part. This will be fun. Well, let's start with Mayor Brandon Johnson, who said at the swearing-in of a few hundred police officers that if you don't live in Chicago, you do not have the right to talk about the city of Chicago. Speaking before the Chamber of Commerce, Johnson later this week said, if you don't live in Chicago and you're not offering up solutions, stop talking about us. Which... I ask you, Eric Zorn, is that second statement different than the first? I don't know. I thought that it was a very unfortunate thing for him to say because Chicago is the beating heart of this region. And if you live in the suburbs, if you live in the exurbs, the health of the city of Chicago, its tourism, its business, its housing, all that stuff – It impacts you. You want the city to do well because then the region does well. And if the city does poorly, then then the region does poorly. So people do have an interest in that. And it almost seems to me like people in the suburbs maybe ought to get – each one gets a quarter of a vote for mayor or something that that, that they really we really are tied together like that so uh, and uh, you know I, I do think i hadn't heard that quote from the chamber of commerce speech but but uh that at least does throw a little new light on it which is that, that i think there are people in, in the suburbs who do have constructive ideas uh and so i i don't i i, I think it's a little bit better but do we make too much of it? No, because everything the mayor says is important. Everything the mayor says has meaning. Everything the mayor says is going to be flyspecked, and he needs to realize that. That he can't just. And I don't think. And I don't think this comment came off the cuff. I think this comment was part of his prepared remarks, and I, I think he needs to watch it when he says things like that because. Yeah. Because, uh, like I said, Chicago is is the heart and soul of this region, like it or not, and it, we want it, people want it to do well. I live in Chicago. I feel like I can say that, John. You, you have we. I know we all, we all live. I think we all live in Chicago, so we all are, are speaking from that vantage point. But I'm happy to know what people in, you know, Evanston, Wilmette, Zion. Well, well they Ottawa. don't. Well, I'll tell you what. They, I'll tell you what they think in Zion and Ottawa. They don't like them. I don't think that's always true, though. And and it's also, to me, this phrase, one, it's not off the cuff, and he keeps saying it. And I think it's we're going to keep hearing him saying it throughout the course of his tenure. To me, it hits my ear like we don't want nobody, nobody sent. It's the, it's the 2.0 version of that. We have an insular political culture in Chicago. We don't care what anybody else does. We do things our own way. Uh and it's gotten us into a lot of messes. And <laughs> Chicago could do well to eat a piece of humble pie and think and lift our head up and look around at what other places are doing well. And beyond that, I think it's it's just factually and logically wrong because I care more about what a black family on the south side who lived there for 30 years and just left to go to Atlanta I care more about what they have to say about Chicago than the 21-year-old Iowa graduate who just moved to Lincoln Park. And so that person gets more of a say because they're a Chicagoan. And if you're outside Chicago, you can't have an opinion. Like, it doesn't make sense. Well, Austin, does it feel to you like something you would say on the campaign trail? Because only Chicagoans vote. Uh, I will offer the people outside the city of Chicago, maybe they don't dislike them, but they... They're not buying in yet, right? They're not sure that he's going to be able to do it. But now that you're mayor, you don't need to say that anymore because, Anna, you need the people outside of the city. 
You do. And there, uh, as Eric points out, their fortunes and failures are tied to yours necessarily. I mean, that's just the way the economic engine works. That's just the way the social and political, you know, sphere works. That they are, we're all interconnected. I mean, isn't Mayor Johnson from Elgin himself? I, I mean, I don't know. He, you know, he spent some time out of, out of town. So uh, did he deserve to talk? Did his family have opinions around the dinner table at night about what was going on in Chicago? I'm going to guess the answer to that was yes. I don't like that whole part about when he says, if you don't have viable solutions to offer, then you don't get to speak either. Because to me, there's like, was he directing that the media? I hope not. Because it's not the media's job to come up with the solutions. It's yours, frankly, Mayor Johnson. You're the one who is charged with that very difficult task. I think people are going to realize it's very early in his administration. No results are going to come quickly. But that don't give people so much to talk about. Six months from now, a year from now, two years, hopefully four years from now, we'll say the city's better off because of his policies. And that's what he should focus on. I never like uh, new mayors or new political people who step into office and Mayor Lightfoot might have been critical. We could have criticized her for this a little too. So right away starts, you know, oh my God, the media's against me. Oh, oh, you know, it's like, wait a minute. You're, we're going to be critical of the policies. That's the job of the media. And to just immediately sort of say, stop that. You're not allowed to do that. Or you're, you're, you're judging us because he said you're judging the young people. You're judging me. You know, he's made criticisms about uh, media coverage as well. That sort of feels to me as if there, there's a better way to say that. There's a there's a more there's a better way to approach that. Well, maybe that's, that's a, it. Maybe there's a better way to say this, because uh, maybe what he's trying to channel is I'm the champion for Chicago. You're either with us or against us, or at least if you're on the outside, you don't know what it's like on the inside. And I do get that, right? I get very defensive when people criticize the crime in Chicago, and I say, you know, that's a more nuanced conversation than the numbers are too high. So when people say, I'm never going to go into the city, it's not safe, I think that's that's not accurate. That's not true. How many people went to see Taylor Swift without incident three nights in a row? I mean, Chicago can be a very safe place to go. So maybe he's trying to channel that. You know, if you don't know what you're talking about, then shut up. And remember, the first time he said it, at least to the police, he was saying it for people who have a residency requirement for their employment. So uh, he's trying to win over the cops. So that's why I asked if that second statement was maybe deliberately a little more nuanced. That is, if you don't have something constructive to offer. I mean, think about his own campaign. Like, Bernie Sanders came in and did a big rally at at UIC to talk about Chicago. And I don't think Bernie Sanders loves everything about Chicago. I think he probably has a lot of criticisms. Um, Jesse Jackson. Like, there's plenty of people and voices that are great to hear from outside Chicago. And to me, this <laughs> oh my gosh, that's totally, a good point. It's <laughs> totally a, uh, it's a way to deflect. It's a way to sort all criticism of Chicago into a bucket of these are um, wealthy white suburbanites afraid of Chicago. And those are the only people who have problems with Chicago. That's not true. Um, so that's, that's one of my other concerns with this. Wait a minute. Doesn't Jesse Jackson live in Chicago? Does he? Uh, I don't know I, if he still does. I think family members do. Elizabeth Warren, then. She came in also. Yeah, I was trying to, and who is the TV star? There were people who were not from Chicago or not living in Chicago that were campaigning on his behalf. That's and, sure. and donating to him, too. I mean, yeah. Maybe if, if he wants to say, you, in the future, I will not take your money if you don't live in Chicago. We'll see if he is willing to, uh, willing to do that. So then, or maybe... Maybe he meant to say, unless you agree with me. If you're well, outside of Chicago and you're donating my campaign that'll and be you the don't next... have viable solutions, as long as you agree with me, that's <laughs> the, okay. The you next version of this. Austin hasn't plugged his book yet. Um, I, I think that it, it's very instructive. I mean, the book, his book is the the, the Chicago Way. What's it called? The New yeah. Chicago Way? New Chicago Way. The New yeah. Chicago Way. Uh, and he, it, it, you know, Austin and his co-author compare the way Chicago does things with other big cities and sort of looks for – I mean, it's very it's very – constructively minded and uh it talks about the different ways that cities can do things so i think if you live in atlanta or denver or los angeles or new york and you've got ideas for how chicago can improve yeah bring them on jesse jackson seems to split time between dc and chicago but we'll (laughs) investigate further (laughs) you're looking as we speak who's doing all these memes i'm looking at some really clever art with stfu you don't live here superimposed on a bunch of scenes the morton salt girl with the umbrella it's raining the salt is falling out the back and above it it says stfu about chicago i'll let you all figure out what follows st that's shut the 
and then underneath it, <laughs> instead of something about Morton Salt, it just says, you don't live here. That would be hairbrained design. Is the, oh, these a, are good. The it's Chicago, the Northwest Side Novelty Clothing Company. The Chicago yeah. Theater Company, and then the marquee says, shut the F up about it if you don't live here. And it's the old style sign and the old style graphics, but instead of old style and croissant or whatever it says, it's shut the F up about Chicago. Um, it's everywhere. The person wearing it would advocate for what Brandon Johnson is saying, and I think we're all saying that what he's saying is stupid, or it's just wrong. But the shirts sure look good, and I think these things are selling. Oh well, it's, I hope for any city business to do well. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm wondering to the extent to which the mayor was reacting to John Cass's post on Sunday. John wrote a really long piece about how dreadful Chicago is and crime on the CTA. And, and, uh, and, and of course, John moved down to Indiana recently. And people are saying, well, you live in Indiana. You don't have anything, 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 any right to comment on what happens in Chicago. And, you know, I, I disagree with John about a lot of issues, but I, I totally think that he's got insight, uh, to offer so every right and every reason to talk about Chicago still, just like Dan Proft, who lives in Florida. Florida. I mean, you know, I, I, if he's got ideas, if he's got common criticism, you know, bring it on. That's fine with me. And and so I was wondering to the extent to which that was a response to, to mm. Cass's posting. I'm not sure. but Eric has offered on this podcast before that the more people run against Donald Trump, the better it is for Donald Trump. By my count now, there are... Ten Republicans running, as well as Cornell West as uh, the People's Party, an independent, and then three Democrats. Marianne Williamson, I think, is still technically running. Robert Kennedy Jr. is running, and Joe Biden's running for re-election. So fourteen and ten Republicans, Eric, and with Mike Pence and Chris Christie in the running, as well as the governor of North Dakota. It does sure seem to make it easier for Trump in that watered-down field, right? I think every Republican primary is winner-take-all in terms of delegates. So when you have a, a base of support that Trump has, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how strong it is, depending on what poll you read, but he certainly is, has a strong base of support among Republicans. You get Republican primary voters out, and let's say most of them think the expiration date is passed on Donald Trump. Let's try somebody else. Let's try someone not as as, as nutty as Trump, but who has conservative policies. Uh, that faction, I mean, if Trump gets, he can get 30% of the vote and still win all the delegates. And he may just waltz to the nomination that way, uh, which, I mean, I, I would think that this is a good case for ranked choice voting. Do you really get the sense of what the voters want out there? Because the Republican Party may end up with someone as their standard bearer, who is not beloved or even supported by even half the party. Who would the number two be, Anna, if Trump is number one with Pence and Christie in there as well as DeSantis? Is it – I know the polls are saying DeSantis is number two, right. but who would you bet on to be number two? To get less nutty, are you talking about? That- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, Nikki Haley, his name has been brought up. Uh, she has the experience for sure. She seems more more centrist for the party than like a Pence or someone like that. Um, I think that, you know, I, 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 I do agree with Eric that every time someone jumps in the race, there's a party at Mar-a-Lago. He's just waiting. You know, this is like, this is great to have like this wide field of candidates. And he's got that base of what is it? 35% of the Republicans, uh, you know, currently are, are behind him no matter what, no matter what you do. So it, it's, it, it does split it up quite a bit. Is it good for the Republican party? No, I think that they need to move on and find some new path ahead. Um, it's it's always kind of weird when you get this many candidates, right? Because there's so much noise. Think of those debates before. It was all Trump. It was him. You know, he just commanded everybody and you didn't really hear as much. You know, he ate up all the oxygen in the room. And that's kind of how it sort of shakes out when he's up there. Yeah, I, I would agree that Haley is a good candidate. Also from the same state, Tim Scott, the uh, African-American senator from South Carolina, uh, has a pretty impressive resume and is uh, a much more moderate voice than, than Trump. I don't think DeSantis is going to do that well. I, I really don't. I think I think that the infatuation with him will fade. But um, and I don't. You know, Chris Christie is an excellent debater. He's a former prosecutor. He came out really hard yesterday uh, or Tuesday when when he was uh, announcing his candidacy, talking about Trump, and he says, "This isn't funny anymore. It's not productive. Uh, this is a bad thing for our party. We need to change a new direction." I think he came in sixth place or something in New Hampshire. 
uh, four or eight years ago when, when he was running. Uh, and, and so I, I feel like it, I, I don't see anybody really rising out of that pack to, to win majority support is what I'm saying. So, uh, so you're going to have people supporting Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, you're going to have, uh, you know, various other candidates, Asa Hutchinson get, getting 8% of the vote, 10% of the vote and Trump getting what 35, 40 maybe, and, and walking away with all the delegates. I think it's been interesting to see DeSantis's play. Um, his campaign thinks, and there's some data to back this up, specifically from uh, Patrick Ruffini, who runs a firm called Echelon Insights. They did they do really good polling on the Republican electorate. And one of the things they've been finding is that the furthest right of the Republican base are actually who DeSantis perceives as the swing in this uh, in this primary. So he's going to continue to try to run to the right of Trump. And you keep seeing him saying things like he's he's really pushing this war on wokeness stuff. Trump never talks about woke. And I think he t- he said some line about it recently, like, woke. everybody says woke, like nobody knows what it means. People are talking about woke, woke, woke. There's like a large part of the Republican base that does know, think they have a def- working definition of that and like that DeSantis is, is the warrior against that. Um, DeSantis also said something that I thought was particularly horrible uh, but shows this tactic about uh the what was the massive criminal justice reform package passed by trump first step act first chance first step act right massive criminal justice reform package one of the biggest accomplishments of his presidency uh a criminal justice reform at the federal level and desantis is calling this like the you know let prisoners loose act uh and that was part of trump's presidency so that's going to be really interesting to see play out another candidate that i think uh, i said this yesterday to a couple of people i think it's maybe accurate i'm trying on this opinion vivek ramaswamy is the right mayor pete uh (laughs) and he's really polished he's really well spoken he's savvy with media yeah 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 and he's you know and he's young he is uh and he's pulling like in the higher single digits despite never running for anything and having no name id just prior to getting into the race. Well, when I asked who the number two was, I was thinking about ranked choice voting, Eric, because if Trump got the most votes but didn't get 50, then they would do it again, and then they would say, okay, who's the number two? And eventually, ranked choice voting distills the most popular among everybody. And Trump would never be anybody's number two, say. He would always be number one for 35%. But it does give a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley or maybe a Mike Pence a chance to sort of bubble up and and win after more and more people are eliminated from subsequent counting. If it wasn't Trump, who would be most attractive to most Republicans? It seems to me like what DeSantis is doing to the right of Trump, that's an interesting observation, Austin, is a narrow lane. That cartoon in the Tribune the other day, he was saying, uh, I'm going to woke the wokes, and every other word was woke, and then the question from the press corps was, yeah, but we asked about climate change. That's not working for me. I think that Vivek would be interesting to to hear him a little more, but I I don't know that he's going to get that traction i really don't know he does seem more in the desantis campus of being right austin is that the feeling you've got from him i've, I've watched him speak i've seen his interviews he does seem um skew in that lane similar i honestly similar to a pete Buttigieg, i think his the issues that he focuses on and the ways he talks about those issues are extremely dictated by the present media environment like i don't really know deep down in his heart what uh what he he really wants to talk about or believes i just think he's an effective communicator um, whereas Tim Scott, I agree, is like resume-wise amazing, personal story amazing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping he'll bring in issues like school choice a lot into this race, which for some reason is not really talked about that much in Republican primaries, but it's something that he's really experienced with and has a, a really interesting life story about. Tim uh, Scott, you're talking about Tim Scott, his persona, his attitude. I was. I heard a description of him at an event where there were 900 people. They said he shook every hand, and he did not stop smiling the whole time. And he's not about grievances. He's about positivity. I've heard that he's running for vice president. That this is that obviously Mike Pence is not going to be Trump's number two, uh, and I don't think he's going to go and take who, who's the woman in uh, out in uh, Arizona Lake. Carrie Lake. 
uh, I don't. I, I think people are saying that she was angling for that, but I think Scott would be a a, a really smart choice for Trump as a as a number two, mm. uh, or or maybe Ramaswamy, I, someone a little different, uh, or or Nikki Haley, a, a woman, someone to round out his ticket a little bit and get some of those voters on the, those moderate voters on board. He needed in twenty uh, in twenty sixteen. He needed to get the. An evangelical right. He he felt that's why he chose Mike Pence. He wanted someone who was going to reassure conservatives. And he was truly conservative. I think the evangelical right is with him, no matter what happens. Clearly, they're with him, no matter what happens. So now he's got to find those moderate voters who are, who are wavering on Trump and thinking, "Gee, we would be like somebody else." And can I really get out and vote with any enthusiasm for this guy who was so chaotic for four years? And so to have somebody in there who's a little reassuring, a little different, maybe appeal to some other or other kinds of voters. That the vice presidential choice is going to be, assuming Trump is the nominee, it's going to be very interesting. But I, I would go with Scott on that as well. I was thinking, when's the last time a vice president ran against his running mate, who he served with? And I think you got to go back to Jefferson and Adams. That this has never happened before, right? That Gore didn't run against Obama. That. Bush didn't run against Reagan, you know that, that that's just that's never happened, except for the second and third presidents. I'm pretty sure that's the math on that. Well, who, you know, I don't remember who ran with Grover Cleveland the second time. That's the, it's, it's the only, I don't either. That's the only analogy where you have a president who's out of. I don't think a vice president in office would challenge an incumbent president. That I, I, yeah, that would. And that goes back to when things were very, very different. But I don't, I don't have any memory from my history class as to who, whether Grover Cleveland's former vice president challenged him for that nomination or not. And then just one last question for you guys about Mike Pence: How attractive or popular is he? Wouldn't he be the sort of sober conservative, the sober conservative? Republican in the room who has the experience, and if you didn't like Donald Trump, then maybe you do like Mike Pence. Uh, he did stand up for the Constitution. I don't understand who the Mike Pence voter is who says, I don't want to vote for Trump, but I also don't want to vote for uh, DeSantis or Nikki Haley. I think it's a vanishingly small number of of people. Mike Pence is defined by his relation to Donald Trump. So why not? Why for not good for, for good or ill, I guess, right? right? Yeah. I think he may end up kind of like the Jeb Bush of, of this cycle, where some like people think, like, well, on paper... He's a fine candidate. Yeah. But he just doesn't excite anybody. <laughs> That's that, true. Yes. Yeah. Remember that the campaign he had, Jeb exclamation point. Uh. Jeb. And you're like that didn't work. It was the wrong, <laughs> wrong punctuation That's mark. True. Yeah. Mike. Semicolon. I want to move on to this business of sports washing. There is a thing that I hadn't heard about much before until I don't know, maybe the World Cup in Qatar, but also, it's now coming up as we talk about this merger between Live Golf and the PGA, where a country or a league or an entity tries to scrub this stain off their image by hosting an international tournament or a popular team or something like that. Saudi Arabia has financed the Live Golf Tournament, the rich rogue league that will now merge with the PGA. I don't know a lot about golf. Like when I turn on TV, I go, Oh, that's real pretty. I'll watch this. And then I watch golf, and I you know, I don't think that much about it. I know that, for instance, some people who are closer to golf than me have said, well, I want to see the live golfers against the PGA golfers on Sunday. I want to see the best compete against the best. I just like watching golf on TV, and I recognize some of the names. So I wasn't missing the live golfers from the PGA events. But I would also just ask this. I wonder if we American sports fans really have a, a firm footing in the moral high ground when cities and teams vie for criminal quarterbacks or abusive relief pitchers or people who, uh, you know, we would say we don't endorse that, but by golly, if they can help our team, we'd love them to pitch for the Cubs or quarterback for the Bears. I'm not a big fan of golf, but I'm a huge fan of human rights. And I feel like, you know, you've got the principles here that I was seem like the PGA was backing initially, at least it seemed to me, they were going to be um, distancing themselves. But imagine you're, you are, you're a PGA golfer and you turn down 200 million, 300 million, half a billion dollars, like generational wealth opportunities 
because you wanted to stand on these principles and stand against a regime, stand up for human rights and and all those things that we like to respect about everyone, including athletes. And then now you see you kind of get sold out by the BGA. Imagine how those guys are feeling today. It just it just it's the wrong decision. Uh, I think most of us believe that, but it's it's just gross. Yeah, they reportedly offered Tiger Woods $750 million yeah. to join this tour, uh, and he declined, and, and uh, Rory McIlroy also declined to join. And, and so this was a huge – this could have been a huge payday for them. Generational doesn't even say it. I mean, Municipal. Municipal like, alone. Um, I thought the PGA should have held firm. They're being sued by Liv over their over their refusal to let people like Brooks Kapka uh, and uh, uh, Bryson DeChambeau and some of those better known golfers play in their PGA tournaments. So there's there's all kinds of lawsuits going back and forth. I don't see the advantage, the the PR advantage, or even the financial advantage of, of for the uh, for the PGA of surrendering to this and given the incredible amount of bad publicity that they're getting for it i mean we're talking about the saudi regime that does not respect human rights that that murdered jamal khashoggi and and we're just and and a year ago the pga was distancing itself from from the live tour and now suddenly they're embracing it and there's no end to the hypocrisy and i guess they're, they're going to make more money somehow doing this but uh but it's very disappointing that they didn't hold out and and try to because uh, you know what's to stop the next person from coming along the next country from coming along and doing the same sort of thing so i, I really think that this was a, a disappointing day would you add to the sins of the live league eric the fact that terrorists that flew the planes into the towers were from Saudi Arabia. Does that stick to them as well? A little bit, although I think the commission that investigated 9-11 said that that was a fairly thin connection between the Saudi government and, the, and I mean, the people were from Saudi Arabia, but they weren't necessarily uh, agents of, this, of the Saudi government. That, I think that was the conclusion of the, of the commission. So there, there was a really cringeworthy clip of the PGA chairman Maybe this was a year ago, uh, speaking live on air when confronted with the question of nine, you know, uh, uh, families of 9-11 victims calling out live golf. And he gave a response that suggested, you know, support them entirely. And, you know, they were right to, to do this. And then he turns around and does this merger deal. But it does speak to the soft, the soft power globally of athletics. So Saudi Arabia is paying Cristiano Ronaldo $200 million a year. They're paying Kareem Benzema, who's just star soccer star at Real Madrid. He's also getting paid two hundred million dollars. Um, both of those single contracts, I think, is more than the entire payroll of Major League Soccer in the United States. Uh, just to, as an example, it's more than the salary cap, I think, of several NFL teams. If I'm if, if I have my numbers correctly, just for two players, and it's entirely just for cultural power, right? Uh, and you see this in the NBA, right? The NBA really wants to access the market in China and then their stars and the the league itself is very hesitant to call out human rights abuses in China. So I think it's I, I like that people be, are becoming more aware of some of the political influences behind these really huge cultural institutions. Uh, and hopefully it results in like some market signals that maybe Americans aren't aren't cool with stuff like this. Get the feeling that the PGA just couldn't compete with the kind of wealth that the Saudis were willing to throw? They were Absolutely. You know, they, I mean, there, there were very few defections, actually. I mean, there, there, there were a handful but of the major names. I mean, I listed um, Phil Mickelson went, um, I say Kepka, DeChambeau, there were, uh, so, and Dustin Johnson went. But they weren't seeing a lot of other other defections and the, and I, I don't think that their ratings were down or i mean I, I don't really see why they caved yet i mean maybe down the line if they were getting their their butts handed to them but i don't think the ratings were very good on those liv tournaments the one thing that the liv tour or, or the live tour did was they allowed players to play in shorts <laughs> and they, really like they play loud music. and they do a three-day tournament versus a four-day tournament and it's four-player teams so they are sort of reimagining the game maybe the pga just saw the future coming and thought we're going to be on the short end of the stick we'd better cut our losses well as you point out it's not like the world of sports is otherwise pristine and the situation with the nba is pretty awful as well with with uh, getting in bed with china that china has a fit when like an nba player refers to taiwan as it's as an independent country they you know they they threatened to 
block all their games and and uh uh, so, and then of course the NBA just falls on its knees and begs and pleads for uh, apologizes to the to the Chinese government for this, and uh, and it's pretty disgraceful the way they handle that. So, so you're right, and, and then you're talking about you know the uh, the spousal abusers and the dog fighters and and people like that who are in the uh, in pro sports in the U.S. That we kind of go, oh, it's a shame that uh, you're not very well behaved, but you do. You do uh, help us win games, so you're you're in. We did that here. Well, here's Rihanna. You need to stand up for human rights again. That was profound what you said to begin with, and now we've kind of forgotten that. Well, I, look, that is what the what's at the core of this. You know, we still buy oil from the Saudis. We still have a lot of relationships with the Saudis. It's not like we, you know we're totally uh, that that isn't happening. Um, I, I think when you mention individual players um with the dog fighting and things like that yeah it, it to me okay we look at individual players and their criminal records and things like that i think if it rose to the owner or the management team i think we would you stand up if someone had you know a, if some billionaire owner of a sports team had like a factory in china with, with labor and human rights abuses i think i think they, there would be there would be some sort of uh, public outcry and probably he'd be removed or from that from that team's ownership i mean we saw Saw that was it Don Donald Sperling wasn't it the LA Clippers guy who he was booted because of his racist remarks and I mean there is kind of we, we do weigh people on those types of um on who they are right in, in sports maybe at the player level you could argue okay some of them allowed to play and, and they shouldn't have but when it rises above that to the system level I think that there is um a there is not only public outcry, but there are consequences. But it is it's very tricky, doesn't it? Because all sports leagues are trying to be as international as they can. Uh, TV sure unites the globe. Nikes are made in China. China abuses people, and yet we all wear Nike shoes, and leagues have Nike patches on their uniforms, and they wear Nike shoes. So then are, you know, what's a league or a player supposed to do? Where do you draw the line? How do you keep score on this? Here's a quote from Scott Van Pelt, the longtime ESPN anchor. He said, so you preach loyalty to a tour, this is what the PGA did, and convince guys not to take eight- and nine-figure deals based in part on that loyalty and in part on the source of the money. Then those guys find out on Twitter, you took the very same money. A lot of them were commenting. The deal was cut in secret. And then they found out in a tweet, the money makers for the PGA look at their phone and go, really? This just happened? I turned down, like you guys said, $400 million. And now you guys are going to take the $400 million or whatever that merger is going to look like. I want to just reiterate what I said about the NBA. And I just I was refreshing my memory on this uh, story from a few years ago when a, uh, one, the general manager of the Houston Rockets tweeted out, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. And this caused such a stir in China that they said they were no longer going to show Rockets games. And the NBA just... It just went crazy apologizing, and they and they, and they made the general manager talk about how uh, he was just it was just my little thought. I wasn't trying to hurt anybody, and it was just it was just so pathetic and so uh, they just they just fell on their on their knees in front of the Chinese government over this over this tweet about Hong Kong, and and uh, so when we're talking about international sports and diplomacy let's let's not forget that that the PGA is not alone in its uh, in its unctuousness. I do think golf fans are going to watch it, though. Like if if whatever that whatever golf is going to be like on TV, not next season, but the season after that, um, golf fans will be there for it. When they do have the majors, the live players get to play against the PGA players, and at the at the what was at the PGA, they uh, they weren't booing. The guy's Phil Mickelson, you know, Phil's actually played pretty good golf lately and everybody was cheering him. It, right. I, thought the, I thought the stink was going to stick for a while, but it really didn't. No, and in fact, Bruce, uh, uh, Brooks Kepka won that tournament from, from the LIV Tour. So, so yeah, and I didn't sense any, any ill will. I, I don't think golf is going to change that much unless they do more international uh, tournaments that feature the the uh, PGA players because all you're going to do is see some of these prominent players coming back to the tournaments 
uh, and and maybe that'll juice ratings a little bit. But uh, I think the short pants is the way to go. So if you and I are at the event, I think they should have longer pants. I'm actually <laughs> going to make a league with that. Or wear louder the- pants, just wow. one of the really fun ones like Caddyshack. Yeah, or those bloomers that they used to wear. That- <laughs> the plus, the plus fours. Yeah. <laughs> I want to move on to something else that's near and dear to my heart here, and that is the business of AM radio. What is it? About half of the car manufacturers now are not going to include in newer models, in new models, AM radio. Tesla was the first, and others don't have it or won't have it. Engineers from our radio station have been petitioning members of Congress to pass a bill that would mandate that AM radio stay in all new vehicles, at least for the foreseeable future, as a matter of public safety. That's how you might find out that the bombs and missiles are coming. It strikes me that, I mean, I love AM radio and I've listened to it all my life. I And I think that that, uh, it, 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 that car manufacturers really should try to figure out a way. That, and there's, I guess there's a little problem that the electric vehicle signal interferes with the AM radio. But I don't really like the idea of the government using this, this I think it's a fig leaf of public safety, to require cars to have am radios i think it's something that the market can decide if people want to have am radios in their cars then fine otherwise people can buy an am radio from amazon for 12 bucks and have it with them if they if they want to uh i don't it strikes me as an over as a governmental overreach uh of something that i mean i I hope like i say i hope that automakers keep the keep the radios on their own but i don't i don't think it should be mandated any more than they should mandate the return of cassette players or cd players I am curious about, so yeah, I think it's Tesla, Rivian, Volkswagen, BMW, none of their electric vehicles, right, have an AM station. And I'm wondering what is the idea that that they could have one, but they're just not as like a cost saving measure? Or is it really just like technologically, it's not, it's not working? Because I, I don't see how a bill from Congress would necessarily fix that if it's just, you know. If it's a technical thing, yeah. If it actually ruins <laughs> the signals. You can fix it with sheathing various uh, cables and so on. You can fix the problem. And they sort of require, they will require automakers to do that. So, yeah, you're basically forcing everybody to pay more for their car um, in order for some people who want to listen to AM radio and uh to do that. Well, we force people to put seatbelts and shoulder harnesses. And if it is a safety issue, then there is certainly plenty of precedent for the government saying manufacturers have to do these things for the common good. And if your phone ran out of juice, if an FM radio station did not pick up the EBS test, it's the AM stations that are linked across 90% of the country. So if the government wanted to get a warning out to everybody at once, AM radio blankets the country, and that's wherein lies the safety measure. That sounds a little old school, but technically that still is true. It's interesting to me that there is support for this bill among Republican lawmakers because a lot of the AM ban now is conservative talk radio. It's good for them. So they like this idea. So now I'm loving me some Ted Cruz right now. <laughs> When's the last time you said that, John? I don't recall having said that. Well, you drive, do you still drive a Tesla? Yeah. Do you have, um, does yours, you were one of the newer models, with one of the first models though, right? First models, low battery life, which is the problem that I've, the, the biggest really? complaint I have with my Tesla, just because you can't get to New Buffalo, Michigan and back, there's no charging station or you can't get anywhere really. I mean, they need the infrastructure. But I mean, you think about half of the radio listeners in the Chicago area are listening to AM. It's huge in, in Chicago and the tradition and history. And I just, you know, I would, I'd hate to see this happen. I think the safety argument is probably the the best one in order to try to get any mandate through because without that i I don't know what happens here how what percentage do you know this john like even listens on an app or other measure other ways you know do you know i do the tribune story said over 70 percent were in a car right john is listening to the radio but they could are they listening on the radio are they listening on their phone and Uh, currently We've just passed the 50% mark of people that listen to us on the stream, on a device rather than on a radio per se. I don't know how that factors into all of this. The idea being that you can listen to us in any car with or without a radio as long as you're using, say, your phone. Just use the app. But the idea that it would be so expensive, think about all of the hardware in a car and they can't include an AM radio in there? Of course they can. I don't know why they don't include that tiny little feature. 
it can't be that expensive for them. What I haven't read is what is what that cost is. Yeah. Is it is it five bucks? Is it fifty bucks? Is it two hundred bucks? I I don't know what what the extra cost is to create the sort of uh, caging off of the of the radio so that it does work with in electric vehicles. I'm not sure what that would be, but but uh, as a general principle. I don't think I buy the safety argument so much. I mean, I guess in, a, in an extreme. Well, you say that now when the missiles aren't flying, but you just wait until your phone goes out and you go, "Huh, I wonder if we're being attacked by China right now." Oh, gee, I don't have AM radio in my new car. <laughs> but would it? I I would think that the areas attacked by the missiles would have AM radio access, right? <laughs> what do you mean? What are you talking about? The, over the Venn diagram is like. Not that big between places where that a missile strike would hit and places that uh, <laughs> do not do not receive it. AM radio. Shut up, Austin. I'm sorry, Eric. I cut you off. Uh, I've no. cut off Austin now. Go ahead, Eric. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. The uh, I mean, it, it just it does seem to me that you you have to have a strange combination of circumstances for AM car radios to be the only uh, way that people can get information. Of course, the other thing is that I think the real the real issue here is not safety so much as the fact that that if you get rid of AM radios in cars, it's really going to harm AM radio. That I mean, that that's the real issue here, not the fact that because you could if you wanted to have an AM radio, you could put one in your glove box, right? But but uh, the fact is there might not be an AM radio station in the case of an emergency, and they and they are better in emergencies. Uh, you, if you you know, WGN is heard throughout the Midwest. Right. So and, and I'm there sure you've are. got and I'm sure you've got some some of the special uh, FCC money to harden yourselves against elect, uh, power outages and so on so that you're, you're still broadcasting when, say, cell towers might be down. Uh, yeah, I don't think the FCC is helping us with that, but we have generators at the transmitter sites. So if the power goes down, we're still on the air. I think there is government. There's a government program that no kidding in a perfect world. The marketplace would decide it would be so vital to people that we would force Chevrolet and General Motors and Volkswagen to keep AM radio in there because people want to have AM radio in their ear, in their lives, and in their cars. I can't imagine being in a car without radio. And I listen to podcasts and I listen to Spotify on my phone and I and I listen to the radio too. Although I got to tell you, the last new car I bought didn't have a CD player, and I spent a couple of days driving down the road trying to shove a CD into the air vents, trying to figure out where the <laughs> CD player was. So they don't even include CD players in cars these days. Uh, oh, by the way, though, but did you see what Neil Steinberg put in the Sun-Times? He had an article about this in the paper today, and he said that in uh, like 1930, when new cars were rolling out, they would cost about $600, and AMFM radio was not standard equipment. In the aftermarket, if you wanted to get it installed into your car, you could, but for the $600 car you were buying, a car radio installed was $130. It would be the equivalent today of $5,000 to get radio installed in your car in 2023 dollars. I'll put it this way. I would not buy a car if it did not have AM radio. And maybe that's just – that's what's got to fix it, Eric. We just – more of us have to say that. Don't buy a car that doesn't have AM radio included. Evidently, that's what happened with Ford, that when Ford announced they were going to get rid of the uh, AM radios, and I think in some of their trucks, their EV trucks and so on, that the public outcry was such that Ford said, hey, all right, all right, all right, we'll put the radio back in. So so that may last. Uh, keep AM radio healthy for another 25 years or so. Eric uh, wondered if we wanted to talk about this fact. iPhone autocorrect will no longer turn F-U-C-K into D-U-C-K. Can we talk about the F word without using it, he wrote to me. I didn't know that was a, a new feature. It was just announced it on Monday. Apple had its big rollout where they had their uh, augmented reality goggles and everything. And one, just one of the things they said was that in the new operating system for the iPhone, they were no longer going to to assume that you you meant to say duck when you're uh, <laughs> diving. I just like, and one thing that struck me about this is that I feel like that word has become so common these days, um, more more so than I remember in the past. And, and one of the things that that uh, my one of my hypotheses is that, is that uh, we're seeing the Roy Kent effect. That uh, you guys watch Ted Lasso at all? Sure. Uh, you know, Roy Kent uh, uses the word all the time, uh, and not not in its 
in its sexual connotation, which is it's, it uses a general kind of obscenity. And the, I, I found on Reddit, a guy did a, uh, a chart of how many, how many times he said it in various episodes. There's one in which he says it 23 times. Uh, in, in one episode? Uh, that was season two, episode 12. <laughs> I'm gonna be oh, I'll, I'll go listen for that. Thank you, Eric. And, and, uh, and then he also, he also charted it with the number of, of times he says that per minute that he's got of screen time. Some, some shows he's not on that much. Uh, so and he has he's up to three uh, f words per minute of screen time in uh, in one of the shows. So uh, and I just feel like that there's that sort of this casual acceptance of this word, you know, not on the radio yet, maybe never, but uh, just sort of in common discourse. I feel like I'm hearing it a lot, but maybe maybe it's maybe it's, I have a particularly salty peer group. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think the percentage of the time people use the f word in a text, but they really meant the duck? <laughs> it's probably a low percentage, don't you think? Right. Your autocorrect to just jump in there and kind of save you, maybe. Yeah, like, you meant duck, right? No, we never mean duck. No, who I you, didn't who mean duck. Are you kidding? Voice to text does F U C K. It doesn't uh, assume that you're saying D U C K. Did you see the chart of, I don't know if I mentioned this on the pod last week or the week before, but when we were talking about succession, the 10 most commonly used words in succession, and the F word is number three. Think about that. Honestly, I I think that is the biggest uh, cultural shift, is more and more programming for adults is on streaming platforms where you don't, you could say whatever you want. So, you know, succession obviously is one of them. Even though I think the interesting thing about succession, I always think about, look this up with HBO shows that become cultural phenomenon, like Girls, Lena Dunham Show, um, succession game of thrones the the raw viewer numbers of these shows is not like succession's final episode got i think two million viewers but it might as well have been like the only thing happening in the world of media that's not that many people you know compared to other other even shows you yeah. know even just TV shows. really you heard is two it? million because uh, i think if you did uh, delayed viewing and stuff like that the number they put out this week was nine but still nine million is not uh, the Waltons regularly had 13 million. It's the, the numbers are just not as big as they used to be, even though the population is so much bigger. And part of what you're seeing maybe have to do with like the reason that Twitter gets talked about so much is that because so many people in media are on Twitter and paying attention to it, that it gets it's excess attention. And it may may also be that with a show like Succession, that the the tastemakers, the critics, everybody's watching it because it's, it's a cultural phenomenon, but it's not actually being watched by as many people you know, out, out in the world. Pete also found an article that showed how many articles were written about succession. And it was over a thousand articles by people in the media writing about this. People weren't reading the articles. They were writing the articles. In fact, like number two on that list was NCIS or something, and it was 147. The interest in it from the people writing about it was far greater than the people that might have been reading about it. Well, it's like, you know, movies about Hollywood get Oscar nominations, right? If they're if they're from a decent director, it's almost a sure thing, right? I don't know where the line is these days on those words, Anna. Like, we know we can't say the F word on radio or TV. They don't even want us to say it on this podcast, so I won't, although we could. You can say damn. You can say pissed off. And I used to not like that word. You can say suck. This sucks. That sucks. I was just I'm not a big user myself, but I just think that the auto correcting it is sort of like saving you from yourself because everyone means to use it, and you're just sort of it's just sort of weird. The rest of those words, you know, maybe uh, less offensive to the autocorrect police. It almost seems like that they're sort of policing it with with that. Yeah, it's just policy. giving you one last chance to calm down. Yeah, right. We know you didn't mean duck. As soon as so much goes on to streaming like we're seeing right now and so much audio goes on to streaming that that you're going to i think find that these words become so common that it might be that the fcc will rethink some of the words that it bans or 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 that your management might might rethink some of the words that it bans i noticed like that the new yorker for instance uh, routinely uses those kind of words in its its presentation whereas you know a generation ago it did not so you know these things sort of edge into respectability yeah. the, the word, you know it was a, a long time ago you couldn't say damn on 
on television or radio. And so these things evolve. And I don't know. I mean, the F word is pretty strong and uh, people it gets quite a reaction from people. But but again, I, I hear it all the time. I think I use it more than I used to also because of the phenomenon. We were watching The Wire now and, and uh, of course, Succession and Ted Lasso and every other word feels like it's that word. So And those so, are good shows. And Ted Lasso it, is a warm homespun show. I know. It's like sort of it's almost It's a wholesome. sweet show. You know what shocked my prudent sensibilities? My prudish sensibilities was uh, the Sun-Times had a story about the White Sox and the Yankees and how volatile those games can be and there can be fights and arguments. And then they showed uh, pictures of famous moments in White Sox-Yankees history. And one of them was a pitcher walking off the field and he was giving his finger to the crowd and they didn't digitize the finger. I don't know that they used to do that. Did they show that? previously i don't think you would have included that you did at all i mean it just I, I do think though that these these i don't i i do agree i don't think I, I run with a particularly racy crowd but i do hear more swear words in natural conversation that are just used for emphasis and not really to offend or anything like that and not perceived as being offensive either than i used to you know i think that the f word gets tossed around in a lot of different ways it's just totally not offensive for some reason whereas i feel like a while ago it, it totally was um, and um, I, I suppose media just reflects life in that way. So, you know, you see it on the streaming platforms and, of course, you'll see it in other formats, too, when you're trying to be real about what's happening. All right. Well, that's all our time for today. Hey, Anna, I hope you will join us again. It's really nice yeah. to hear you and see you on Please the Zoom. Do. Please fun do. Fun to be on. Thanks for yeah, being really part of The Missing Rascals. We'll Thanks, John, for the invite. We'll send you your button. That's Anna Devlantis, Austin Berg, Eric Zorn. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams, and we'll drop another pod on you next week. All right. Thanks. That was really that was really good, Anna. I'm really glad you joined us. Anna, you're yeah. terrific at this. You Thanks, should consider Anna. a career in broadcasting or something. <laughs> yeah. I was just kidding you about the invite. I never really dropped it, but I always <laughs> you guys, and I, I enjoy it. And you know, you guys make news a lot too, which is cool. Hey, John, could you text me that link about Succession and the F word being number three? Where if, if Pete has it or you have it? Yeah, no, I'll grab it for you. And g- like- guess what the number one word is? Think about how hard it would be to insert that word that much that it comes up as the third most commonly used word. In well, all. it can't be not more than the or a or something like that, right? But the, the number one is yeah. They took the yeah. article. Well, and, and you think about it, that's the way they kind of talk. They went, yeah, well, uh, you know, their conversations were very circular, right? Just kind of. <laughs> Who the f- is counting these words? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway. We'll talk All to right, you guys, guys later. Guys. See you. Seeing you guys. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at wgnradio.com. 